We are in the book of Joel, which is, I confess, a bit of a doozy. Jonah's so nice, you know, you learned about Jonah in Sunday school. It's got a fish and a guy that runs away and a storm. And Hosea, you did not learn in Sunday school. But at least there's a storyline. Uh, Joel is basically about a bunch of destructive bugs. And, uh, but it's in the Bible, so we're going to go through it and we're going to learn from it. Uh, no, I was, uh, over the last couple of weeks, going back into Joel again and again. And uh, honestly, there's sometimes I really struggle to find, like, where are the, the messages that I believe that God wants me to share with you guys uh, because of the, the text. I actually, in this case, found myself personally fascinated by Joel, but then had a hard time translating that into something that I felt would be valuable to, for you to hear this morning. Uh, Joel is a book about judgment. It's a, it's a brief little uh, window, but it's a book about judgment. It's God's judgment on his people Israel. How many of you have ever felt at any point in your life that something bad happened because God was judging you? Sweet, at least 10 of us. When I was a senior in high school, I was a wrestler. And my final tournament, my senior year, um, it was a three-day tournament, and I did smashingly well on day one and two, and then I got really, really sick, and I was pretty sure God was judging me, but I wasn't exactly sure why. Some of you, and this is who I want to speak to this morning, some of you wrestle with a sense that... Uh, that things happening in your life are an indication that God has set himself against you. Uh, that's the way that you interpret events and you wrestle with that. Um, some of you right now even have that sense but, but have a hard time really pinpointing what it is that God would have you do to change that. Some of you have events yet ahead of you in your life that will cause you to question, is this, God's, is this some sort of God's judgment or, or even discipline on my life? And if you're in the business of disciple-making, you will walk with others who are wrestling with the same question. This thing has happened to me. What is God trying to say through this bad thing that has occurred in my life? What I want to do this morning through the book of Joel is offer four truths that will help a person, you or anyone that you disciple, move from a place of dread into times of refreshing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a little context to start out, and then I'm just going to walk through the book of Joel real quickly. I'm going to read a significant a chunk of Joel. It's a real short book. There's four scenes in the book of Joel, and then we'll come back and go back into it and make application at the end with those four truths. You ready? If you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles over here at our info table. You can grab one. You can take it with you. We have a Bible on our app. But let's start with this, a little bit of context. We are wired 
by God to make moral judgments. We are created in his image, and as a result, we require justice. All of us, whether you are uh, someone who believes in a God or someone who rejects the idea of God, we are all wired to make moral judgments. Not only do we make moral judgments, but we believe in our moral judgments and we believe that our moral standing will win out against others. People who have differing moral views from you in their hearts believe and hope that their moral view will win out against yours. We are made in the image of God to make moral judgments. If you have children, that is what children do. They make moral judgments against each other. Romans 2, this is what Paul is talking about. He says, therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. They show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. What he's basically talking about in Romans 2, he says, okay, so we understand, he's talk, he says, we have the law, right, which tells you this is right and wrong. Just set that aside for a second. And what you discover is that even the person who has never heard the word of God makes moral judgments. In fact, we are so severe in our moral judgment making, he says, we all stand condemned according to our own moral judgments. I've been married a little over 20 years. I know what a good husband is supposed to be like, and I'll tell you today, I stand condemned under my own moral judgments. By me, not by my wife. She's been very gracious. But we disagree on two things. We disagree on what is good and evil. We see that today playing out across our culture, around the world, and even locally. We don't disagree on whether or not there should be moral judgment, but we disagree on what should be called right and wrong. Correct? Well, I'll tell you who will be judged. Everyone who has those blinding blue headlights on their cars. <laughs> you're going to stand before God someday, and you're going to answer for those things, okay? <laughs> Every inventor of a noise-making toy for children <laughs> with no off switch and a screw holding the battery compartment lid on. You're going to stand before God and answer for that someday, I promise. A few years ago, I was teaching a class, and I, at the end of my class, I was given the student evaluations. And there's a section on the student evaluations that says, do you have any additional comments? And one of my students wrote, what's up with no eyebrows? It was an anonymous um, evaluation. But if you're here this morning, you're going to face judgment. You're going to stand <laughs> before God and answer for that. Some of you right now are squinting to see if I have eyebrows. You're going to face judgment. <laughs> Wait, does Aaron have eyebrows? I can't remember. 
We can disagree on what constitutes good and evil. We do disagree. And we disagree on who will ultimately judge good and evil. The humanist says there is no eternal judge. We are our own judges. The believer says we will never correctly judge ourselves, but we will one day stand before an eternal judge who judges rightly. So, that's our foundation. We're going to talk about judgment, the judgment of God. So, let's look at uh, Joel, scene one, the locust horde. Like I said, this is a, it's a, it's a book about bugs. So, if you like bugs, actually, I think I have a picture. Is there a picture? Next slide. Ooh, there we go. I actually was going to bring a video, and I thought no one will be able to focus on what I'm talking about. Scene one is a description of a locust swarm that had descended on Israel. I actually was, this is the part I was kind of fascinated by, so I did a little bit of digging. Like, this still happens today. In fact, um, it was in, uh, I believe, in Madagascar a few years ago. There was a locust swarm that covered 270 square miles. That's a lot of bugs. A locust swarm uh, can be up to four billion strong, and a locust swarm consumes about 100,000 tons of vegetation a day, which is equivalent to what a million people would eat in a year. These guys get it done. And here's the crazy part. Locusts, the eggs of the locust, all these billions and billions of eggs, lie dormant in the ground for up to decades until God says, <clears throat> I need some locusts. <laughs> and there they come. Joel 1, the word of the Lord. So this is not going to be on the screen, but I'll tell you where I'm reading from. I didn't put it on the screen just because it's a longer passage, but you can follow along in your Bible. I'm reading from the New American Standard. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? I want you to tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons, the next generation. This is what I want you to tell them. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten, and what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten, and what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake drunkards and weep and wail all you wine drinkers. Why? on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion and has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white Wail, 
like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined. The land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because of the harvest of the field is destroyed, and the vine dries up, and the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple trees, all of the trees of the field dry up, and indeed rejoicing dries up from the sons of men." He continues, now keep in mind, he's talking about bugs. Joel 2, verse 3, a fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, like war horses, so they run with a noise as of chariots. They leap on the top of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish. All their faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers. They march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march, everyone in his path, and when they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb in the houses. They enter the windows, snatching your people up like a thief before them. The earth quakes and the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. That's a lot of bugs. There's no way around it. A horde of locusts so thick that it has cut off the light from the sun, the moon, and the stars. A horde so thick that there is nowhere to escape. They have destroyed everything in their path. Tell your sons and their sons and their sons to the next generation. Scene two, repentance. Joel 2, 12 through 14, yet even now declares the Lord. Return to me with all of your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting from evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord. So in the midst of this experience, this horrific plague, there's an invitation, even now, turn to him. Scene three restoration, and then the Lord will be zealous for his land, and he will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I am going to send you new grain, new wine, 
new oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army, which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And then my people will never be put to shame. And then the final scene of Joel, chapter 3. For behold, in those days, and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And then I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, sold a girl for wine. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from the territory, behold, I am going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Verse 13, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. And here it is, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And that's Joel. Four truths. I'm going to go through these expeditiously. The first one is this. Judgment and discipline are not the same thing. Judgment of God and the discipline of God are not the same thing, and both are functioning here through the prophet Joel. Let me explain. God's judgment is a fixed future point in time. It will happen, and once it happens, it will be over. Acts 17.31, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Who will stand and judge all of mankind? Jesus will. During his first visit as a man, he says, now just to be clear, on this trip, I am not here to judge I am here to save. We, the church, as his body, have a saving mission given to us by Jesus Christ. We are here to save. 
But he's coming back. And when he comes back, he comes back as judge. Judgment is a fixed future point in time. It is an event that takes place. And Christ is the judge. When people point towards a specific disaster, maybe like a natural disaster, and say, well, there's God's judgment, I find not only is that not super helpful, but it's, it's based on a misunderstanding of God's judgment. You understand that the locust in the book of Joel are not God's judgment. He says, there's going to come a day when I will stand and judge. And once my judgment is made, there's no reversal. You don't go backwards to judgment. But in the meantime, this is a period of discipline because judgment is coming. If you in your own uh, experience have sort of a generalized malaise, a, a fear of God's pending judgment, a sense of like, he would be justified in doing me harm, it's just a matter of when and where. I know many young moms who have small children wrestle with the idea that maybe God will judge me by doing harm to my children. It's not specific. It's not connected to anything actionable. It's just a general sense. I'm a sinner. I have failed. And God would be just. If that's you living in fear of judgment, you don't properly understand judgment. Judgment day will come and no one will be confused when it happens. He says in Joel, I will stand and I will gather, how many? All of the nations in the valley of decision. God's discipline, on the other hand, is always restorative. It's ongoing and it's with an eye toward future judgment. Tell my children. In fact, this is like an ongoing joke in our house. You can sit at our table with food falling out of your mouth, with all of whatever that noise is coming out of your mouth as you eat. But there's going to come a future day when you're on a date. And that girl's going to be sitting across the table watching you, and she's going to say, check, please. The consequences now are not so dire. We will still love you through your gross eating habits. I'm trying to prepare you for future scrutiny, which is of greater consequence. God's discipline is ongoing, it's restorative, and it's with an eye towards future judgment. 
God's discipline often looks a lot like a locust swarm. It feels like the, the vitality, the joy is being drained out of every nook and cranny of my life. And if you remember a while back, we looked at Psalms 32, where David, because of his unwillingness to repent, is experiencing God's discipline, not his judgment, but his discipline. And he says, in Psalms 32, he says, my vitality was drained away from me. I had no life in my bones. But it's specific. And for those who resist and persist, whatever disobedience, whatever unwillingness, the locust swarm invades, devouring peace and joy in every area of my life. It feels like a wasteland. And it can produce, in the heart of the one who does not properly understand God and his character, a sense of despair. It can lead us to believe that all has been lost. This is what Joel says. He says, I want you to respond to discipline first with your heart, then with your hands. I want you to respond first with your heart. Joel 2.13, rend your heart and not your garments. God says, listen, what I'm after, the thing that you were created for is a heart connected to mine, is relationship with me. What we tend to do is in fear of God's uh, discipline or judgment, however we conceive of it, we think, well, I've got to get some stuff together. I mean, I've been like really kind of a lousy husband or father or employee or whatever recently, and I don't want God's discipline, so let me, uh, let me sh- prove to him that I can get it all straightened out, and then I can turn to him and expect good things. God says, no, 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 don't rend your garments, rend your heart. Turn your heart towards him as step number one. That's what I'm asking you to do. The amazing secret behind that is that all of the resources that you need to overcome are provided to you when you turn your heart, when you rend your heart towards him. He says, I've got it. I've got what you need. Repentance is rending of the heart, turning to God, and adopting a posture of worship. It is a lie of the enemy who says, you don't deserve forgiveness, you need to get it together first. Rend lots of garments, and then God will be impressed. God says, don't rend your garments, rend your heart. Turn to me, now, today, right now. The third truth is this, the outcome of discipline and judgment is the same. In Joel 2.27 and 3.17, God states that outcome. He says, in that time, you will know that I am the Lord your God. 
Some of us, by God's grace, learn that through discipline. Some will only make that confession at the place of judgment, in the valley of decision. But either way, all will know that Jesus is Lord, that He is God. Regardless of your view of judgment, regardless of your view of justice, regardless of your view of morality, all of us will stand before God and know Him as God. If you have allowed the pace of your life to prevent you in your own private world from standing before God. I don't know how else to say it other than you're missing the point. All of us must stand before God. That is His desire, is that you now in your place, in your time, would stand before God and recognize him as God. Number four, our confidence in discipline and in judgment is the same. That's what I mean by that. The thing that gives us confidence in discipline, the thing that gives us confidence at that future day of judgment is one and the same. Joel 2, verse 28. And it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. God was not content that we would simply stand and objectively agree with the reality of his existence. Even the demons do that. His plan was an ongoing, vital, personal, life-giving relationship with him through his spirit dwelling in us. Romans 5.5, 5, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Romans 8, verse 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. In that place of discipline, it's actually the Spirit of God in us that reminds us that we are the children of a loving Father. 
whose heart is for us. Second Corinthians one twenty one. Now he who establishes us with uh, us with you in Christ and anointed us in God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. When I stand before the final judgment, you will not hear Aaron Weiser say, "Look at what I did and didn't do." What I plan to say, depending on how that conversation goes. You remember me? I have your spirit in me, which Paul says was given to us as a pledge, as an indication of to whom we belong, as evidence of where we stand with God. I will give my spirit to whoever wants it. I will be no respecter of persons. Even the servants get to have my spirit in them. Which is good news if you're a servant, I would think. We are filled with the Holy Spirit when we place our faith in Christ. But some of you here this morning have lost a sense of vital connection. And it might be because of uh, overt disobedience in your life that's unaddressed. It might be as a result of a series of things that are out of your control completely, that have left you feeling uh, desolate. And it might be because of inattention to some things in your own life. The vitality is drained away. You do not dream dreams. You do not have visions. You don't hear from God. But you have the Holy Spirit in you. And all that we do is we turn our hearts reconnect with him and say, God, I want to stand before you. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to walk in such a way that my heart is inclined towards you. Invite the worship team up. Joel 2.13. Rend your heart. Invite his spirit even now. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. an amazing thing to be walking in those prophetic promises, is it not? We stand here this morning having received that gift of the Holy Spirit. And yet if you're here this morning, and again, for any, any host of reasons, 
feel like you have lost a vital connection. You feel like that relationship that he made possible is not the reality that you walk in. It's a very simple invitation to you this morning. If, you would, if that's you, for any reason, you say, I just want to connect with the Holy Spirit right now. I'm not going to rend my garment. I'm going to rend my heart. I would invite you uh, as we go into worship, take the opportunity. We're here before God in his presence. Come forward here. Just kneel. Ask the God's spirit to fill you, to empower you. And as you do so, I will invite our elders and their wives uh, to come and just pray us a prayer of blessing. There won't be an interview. There won't be a discussion to put a hand on you and pray for God's spirit to empower you. I'm going to lead in that as we go to worship and I'll join you here before the altar. Would you stand with me? There's a couple of other ways to respond. Uh, we have communion. We celebrate Christ in us through the bread and the cup. Our life hidden in his. You can give. You can stay in your seats and just enjoy worshiping the Lord. You're also invited to come here and just receive a prayer of blessing. The Spirit would empower your life. Let's come before Him. Amen. Uh, God works in moments. He provides opportunities where He moves in our hearts and He gives us an opportunity in a moment for us to respond where there's a moment of breakthrough. So, uh, I uh, this morning, I uh, was reminded of that verse in uh, Luke where the disciples are, they're walking with Jesus Jesus has been risen from the dead, and they don't know it's Jesus. And it says that he opened the scriptures to them as they walked, and, that, and, and they're, you know, they're doing this. Oh, my gosh. And he's explaining to them Jesus. And they don't even know that it's actually Jesus just explaining himself to them, his death and his resurrection. And so they urge him to sit down and eat food with them. They sit down to eat food, and Jesus breaks some bread, right? And they go, oh, it's you. And they realize it's Jesus, right? Um, but then they say to each other, oh, were our hearts not burning within us as he opened the scriptures to us? And so this morning, I feel that the Lord is burning within some of your hearts. So take this moment that God has given you to respond to him. He wants to not just reconnect, but he wants to um, move in your heart in a way for some of you that you have not had in a long time or maybe completely new. Um, there's prayer after the elders will be there uh, for a while to provide prayer. Um, and every week people get prayer. We get people who uh, have God move in miraculous ways in their marriages. God physically heals bodies. God uh, touches your heart and brings peace when you haven't had peace for a long time. So take this moment to respond to God uh, if he's moving in your heart. And for the rest of us, it's an awesome sunny Sunday yet again, which we've had a lot of those recently. Praise the Lord. Worship was great. Thank you guys. Go ahead and give the worship team a hand. That was awesome. So we don't officially end till 1230. So maybe hang out a minute, say hi to someone. If you wouldn't mind uh, sticking around for a few, help us pick up the chairs and the curtains, that would be great. God bless you and have a wonderful week.